we have more in common with you here this morning because Phoenix does not change. Uh, we're on California time, so it's just after 8 o'clock here. And the watchword here is pray that your flight not be in the winter, on the Sabbath, or early in the morning. <laughs> we understand what Hawaii goes through every week. Well, we are facing today the beginning of a time which pictures the most difficult task that we face, and that is putting sin out of our lives. Just this very morning, uh, the motel here where we have the meeting room puts out a continental breakfast, and to show you how easy it is to sin, we had a man who went out and got some coffee and a nice big roll and brought it back into the meeting room this morning and was about to take a big bite when I said, hmm, I wonder if that's leaven. I won't tell you his name, but his initials are Rick Stites. <laughs> I mean, here's a veteran who's been in the church for decades, and that shows just how easy it is for us to allow sin into our lives. He said he was a bad boy. I said, no, you're potentially a bad boy. You didn't take the bite. And that's true of all of us with our natures. Well, it was during the Passover service that something just came right out of the scriptures as I was reading and struck me right in the face, something I had never really focused on before. And it does have some bearing on the sermon subject for this morning, so I'm going to go through that briefly and then tie it together with what I already had, already had planned. But there are some tests of discipleship, first of all, in John 13 through 17, which let's address here uh, by turning to 15 and verse 8, where he says, Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. So one test of our discipleship is whether or not we bear much fruit, hearkening back to the beginning of the chapter about he being the vine and we being the branches and so on. Now secondly, let's go to chapter 14, backward here a little bit, I put these in a particular order and on purpose. Uh, back to 14 and verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And then he talks about praying the Father that the Comforter come and help. But let's get to verse 21. He that has my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me, and he that loves me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. So the second key to our discipleship is obedience to the laws of God. And I put this next one third because it is the thing that leaped out at me. Now we have always recognized this in principle, I think, in that we realize we are to be a part of the family of God, that we are to be on the same level with God in terms of our immortality, in terms of our minds and hearts and attitudes and our nature, these are going to be changed in the moment in the twinkling of an eye so that we will be like him and we will see him as he is. So that we have had as a foundational concrete doctrine for decades now in the Church of God, and I think we all understand that. But the focus that I want to approach now, we find and this is part C of the test of our discipleship, in chapter 13, 
And I wanted to bring up this last because it's the part I want to discuss the most. <coughs> Chapter 13 and verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. The test of our discipleship is whether we love one another or not. One of the major tests of it. A lot of people say, well, I'm fine with God. It's people I can't get along with. If we don't know how to have a close relationship with people, we have not learned how to have a close one with God. Because the principles are the same. The character, the procedures, the knowledge, the way of dealing is the same. The first four commandments and the last six commandments are inseparably linked. The first four about loving God, the last six about loving man. And if we think that we can have a close, warm relationship with God and not have a close, warm relationship with his people, we're kidding ourselves. Because we have not learned the basics of how to get along with people. If you don't have people's skills, to put it another way, you don't have God's skills either. Therefore, we need to work on our people's skills. And I think you can look at the Church of God today and all its scattered forms at how well people are getting along and have they moved testimony to our lack of people's skills. And at the same time, a test of our God's skills because God is angry with us. He is unhappy with us because of our skills and our relationship with him and our skills and relationship to his people. Now, where was that verse I wanted to read next? I thought I wrote it down. Maybe I didn't. My mind, among other things, is slipping. Where did I put that? Uh, well, 1515 is what I ultimately want to get to. <clears throat> but before that, ah, here it is, chapter 13, and verse 13. You call me Master and Lord. He's talking to his disciples here at the foot washing. <clears throat> and you say, well, for so I am your Master. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now notice the way he addresses them here. You are the servants, I am the Master. Now let's go to chapter 15 and begin in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. So he's introducing what he is about to do for them and showing by example what we should be willing to do for one another. How far we should be willing to go for our friends. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. 
Now, here's the part that just hit me in the face. I've read it I don't know how many times. Henceforth, that is, from now on, or forevermore, henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knows not what his Lord does, but I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known to you. He is signifying a change in relationship. He is upgrading us to first class, if you will. Before, just before, at the footwalking, he has said, I am the master, you are the servant. But here, he changes it, and as says, henceforth, that is not the relationship that I desire. I desire to be your friend. He says a master does not have to tell his servants everything. I mean, he's the master, obviously. And they simply do his bidding. And I have always looked at my relationship with the Father and the Son as a servant saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. And for decades I have struggled with even trying to reach and maintain the servant level. And yet here, Jesus Christ is saying, I am upgrading this to a friendship in which nothing is held back. I will share everything with you. I will share my life with you. I will give my life for you. Because we are friends. Or potentially friends. There is a kicker here. What he is laying on them is something that I now in turn, by reading these scriptures, am laying on you. That you must rise above the master-servant relationship and become a friend of God. He called very few people in the Bible his servants. And today he calls very few friends, as we will see. But that is the relationship that he wishes us to upgrade to. We have to conquer the master-servant and come to be humble and contrite and tremble at his word and be willing to say, yes, Lord. And then he offers, above and beyond that, friendship. Remember the scripture, is it Jeremiah? Is it Isaiah? I forget now exactly where it says, you will no longer call me master, but you will call me husband. Now, there's an upgrade for you in the prophecies. And Christ offered that to his disciples at this point in time. And it's still being offered to us, because he offered it to the twelve, and they in turn now offer it to us. And I had never really focused on that or comprehended it in quite this specific a manner before. And it put a heavy burden on me the last couple of days that I, have to respond to this, and I have to become his friend. Now this ties in very closely with what I have to say a little later on. For the servant, back to verse fifteen. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knows not what his lord does; he has no comprehension of the scope of what his master is doing. 
But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known to you. I held nothing back. There is the first element of friendship, not holding back from one another. True friends share. They give. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. These things I command you, that you love one another. Here's the basis of friendship. But how many friendships in the church are breaking up? How many of us lack the people skills and the God skills that are necessary to maintain real friendships? In spite of whatever warts we might have. Because when Christ said, I will call you friends, he was talking to a group of men who still had a lot of warts on them but he was willing to call them friends in spite of themselves. But we are very quick to judge when we see weaknesses or faults or perceived weaknesses and faults in others, and we're willing to just brush them away so very easily if they don't agree with us or they don't have exactly the same mind that we do. Well, let me ask you, what two people on earth have exactly the same mind? What two human beings have ever agreed on everything? Can any of you people who have been married for 30, 40, 50, 60 years tell me you have always agreed on absolutely everything? Yet you still walk together, somewhat bumbling at times, because we don't always agree, do we? Now, there are instances where we simply cannot walk together because there's so much disagreement that we can't get along. But maybe we're lacking in the skills we need to form true friendships with man and with God. But he lays it on us and tells us that's what we are to do. And somewhere here, I, my eye doesn't fall on it, it says that he calls us his friends if we keep his commandments. See, every upgrade in our relationship with him always has a contingency. We always have to perform. <clears throat> he offers us marriage. He offers us friendship. But we have to perform. He will fulfill his side of the bargain always. We have to fulfill ours. Now, this ties in very closely with what I already had prepared, and that is the overall subject of overcoming. Because as we come here, we realize that in Revelation 2 through 3, all seven churches, the whole church, is given the same admonition. Overcome, and you shall be given a white stone. Overcome, and you'll sit with me in glory. Overcome, and all those promises he gave there in Revelation 2 and 3 will be yours. So as we enter the days of unleavened bread, the idea and the object is to put sin out of our lives and to overcome. Now today I want to discuss what I consider to be the first necessary step in overcoming and ultimately of putting sin out of our lives. So the title here will be Self-Deception. It is so easy to be deceived and to deceive ourselves. And when we're deceived, we do not overcome. Did you overcome when you were out in the world? 
You didn't have any idea what overcoming was even about. And even in the church sometimes, we don't know what to overcome. Now let's go back and explore the human mind and the beginnings of deception. The first place I want to turn is one that you probably are not familiar with at all. That's Jeremiah 17, and guess which verse? Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart, the human psyche, mind, heart, consciousness, the human being, in other words, our innermost thoughts, our innermost emotions, our heart, is deceitful above all, above everything. And how wicked? Desperately wicked. Now here's an interesting question. Who can know it? It is so deceitful that it is difficult to know the human heart. In fact, only God, whose word pierces the marrow and the bone, can really grasp and comprehend who and what we are and read the innermost workings of our hearts because self-deception is so easy. It is natural. So let's begin this with, un with that understanding that it is very difficult to know our own hearts. And it is very difficult, even above that, to know the heart of our friends. Because we know more about ourselves than we do them. And we shall see we may lie to ourselves more than we lie to them. Now where did it begin? Let's go back to Isaiah 14. <clears throat> Isaiah 14. Talking about the king of Babylon here, who ultimately is Satan. Uh, let's see, I want to pick it up, I guess, in verse 11. We all know the story. It was read to us through the decades by Herbert Armstrong quite frequently. Verse 11, your pomp is brought down to the grave. He was swelled up in vanity and pomp and his own glory. In the noise of your vials, the worm is spread under you and the worms cover you. How are you fallen, O Hillel, or Satan, son of the morning? That's the real Hebrew here. How are you cut down to the ground which has weakened the nations? For, now here's the answer, for you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be the Most High. I think is the correct translation there. Not like, but be the Most High. Where could anyone come up with such great swelling vanity as to think that he could take over the throne of God and depose the creator of the universe? His own creator. You talk about self-deception. Now, how did he get there? Let's go to Ezekiel 28. <clears throat> he was the anointed cherub that covered, verse 14. 
and I have set you so. You were upon the holy mountain of God. You have walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire on the sea of glass before the very throne of God, covering the throne of God. Ezekiel 28:14. You were perfect or mature in your ways from the day that you were created till iniquity, iniquity was found in you. Now, we have never understood perfect maturity. We have never had proper attitudes completely toward God. But here's someone who did. Here's someone that was far above us in understanding and ability and obedience as a true servant of God. By the multitude of your merchandise, they have filled the midst of you with violence, and you have sinned. Therefore I will cast you as profane out of the mountain of God, and I will destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You have corrupted your wisdom by reason of your brightness. I will cast you to the ground, and I will lay you before kings, that they may behold you. Here's the key. Deception entered his mind. He became deceived as to who he was. He deceived himself to think that he was more than he was, that he was better than the rest of the angels, and believe it or not, I'm better than God. Now, how did this happen? How many millennia or aeons, or I don't know how you count spiritual times, how long it has been that he has served faithfully his creator? And all the angels followed the carrots, Gabriel, Michael, and Hillel. I don't know how it could have happened. I can only imagine. I think I used this example one time. But maybe when he was coming down to, from various places on earth to report into the Father, uh, on his throne that there was a sea of glass, bright and shining and perhaps reflective. And he would come flying in there before the throne of God and, and make a landing. And maybe at some point, instead of looking at the Father when he came in for a landing, he glanced down and he saw his image there because it says because of your beauty. And he looked down and said, Man, I'm pretty. I am beautiful. And this began a thought process. Next time he comes flying in, he just kind of gives it a little extra wing tip and flips down and makes a beautiful landing. And he's really impressed. Now, not only am I beautiful, but I make beautiful landings on the sea of glass. I am really something. And this thought grew and grew and grew until he deceived himself about his own powers and abilities. I don't know that it happened that way. I'm just extrapolating this about how he was lifted up because of his beauty and his wisdom was then corrupted. And then once the delusion set in, it grew and grew and grew until he really did think he could take over the universe. What incredible self-deception. Now we're going to follow the process here. God decided to create man in his own image. He created Adam and Eve. What did Satan then do? Immediately, as soon as he had a chance, he came in and told them, you're just as good as God is. Spread his attitude toward them. 
And if you take of this tree, you'll be like God. Now, he had failed in his attempt to take over the throne of God, but he wanted to destroy the plan of God from the very first two human beings. And he said, boy, I know how to do it, because I see how I destroyed my position, and I destroyed one-third of the angels along with me. So I can take care of Adam and Eve. Boy, did you see how quickly they sucked up that deception. How quickly our minds can be deceived. Revelation 12, 9. I won't turn there, but it says, Satan deceives the whole world. Now, he had deceived the whole world when he deceived Adam and Eve. And as man has increased in population on the earth, he has continued to deceive the whole world. He had 100%, and now he has nearly 100% of the world deceived. And even those who are not fully deceived are partially deceived. That's you and me. Now let's go to 2 John 7. 2 John 7. For many deceivers are entered into the world, not just Satan, who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh or is coming and living and dwelling in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. So now there are many deceivers in the world. Second Corinthians 11. Let's tie this together with that. Second Corinthians 11. And here I want uh, verse 14. Second Corinthians 11:14. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. So he is able to make both the demons and human men appear as angels of light. I was giving this Bible as a Bible study in several areas before I decided it probably should be utilized on the Days of Unleavened Bread. And it suddenly struck me what happened in Anchorage, Alaska. I think it was on a holy day, I forget now, but it was a combined meeting of all the churches there, Soldotna, Anchorage, uh, uh, Fairbanks, and uh, Homer. All four churches were there. So there were upwards of probably 500 people, at least four and probably toward 500 people. And a sermon was given, one sermon, which said, we will now go from keeping the Sabbath from sunset to sunset and keep it from six to six. Now that is clearly contrary to Scripture where God says, the Sabbath is from sunset to sunset. And I lived in Alaska many years, and I know that south of the Arctic Circle, the sun does set. The longest part of the summer, it may be at 11.30 in the evening, but it definitely sets. And even in Fairbanks, where I was, which is very near the Arctic Circle, in the summertime, the sun set. And it was sort of deep twilight for a few hours, and then it came back up. But it was definitely beyond the horizon. So there was no problem with keeping sunset to sunset. I want to make that very clear. 
But for their own reasons, they decided, whatever they were, and I wasn't there when they discussed this, for their own reasons, they decided to do away with God's Sabbath from sunset to sunset and create their own Sabbath from six to six. And it only took one sermon, perhaps one hour and 15 to 20 minutes, and 96 to 98 percent of that congregation gave up the Sabbath. Wholesale. As soon as the sermon was over, the man in front of me stood up and said, well, that makes my life easier. Just like that. The Sabbath is one of the most sacred of things that we have. One of the most inviolate. It's one of these specific Ten Commandments. And they summarily did away with one of the Ten Commandments there in an hour and twenty minutes. Let's be fair and give them an hour and a half in case it was a long sermon. In an hour and a half, people gave up the fourth commandment. My wife and I and one other couple are the only people I know of who stuck to it. There were a few people who went along grudgingly for a while and then finally gave it up. We were kicked out of the church for it. And in some ways, I'm thankful. Now, I would not say that it was completely in that hour and a half service. Let's be fair about this. The brain dirtying took longer. So the brain, we call it brainwashing as a term, but I, I prefer to call it brain dirtying in this case. We were told for years and years the church government was more important than scripture. Herbert Armstrong made the decision in Norway, and I think in the 60s, that they could keep the Sabbath from 6 to 6 there. And I think that was a wrong decision to be made. On the other hand, I think he was probably fed some stupid information. And that is, someone came and said, the sun doesn't set up in the north part of Norway, and therefore, we need to change the Sabbath. And he said, well, if the sun doesn't set, we'd better just pick an arbitrary number. And he probably used that which the Jews had used in Jerusalem 6 to 6. A logical decision for him to make. Probably not understanding that no one lives north of the Arctic Circle who keeps the clean and unclean meat law. If you're going to live that far north, I don't think God intended you to because you're going to eat whale and seal blubber. And the only church members who ever, as far as I know, in Alaska, went above the Arctic Circle up to the Beaufort Sea to mine oil were people who disregarded the Sabbath anyway because up there you had to work two weeks on and two weeks off and you had to work on the Sabbath and there were no exceptions. So the only jobs up there required Sabbath work. And other than caribou, the only thing to eat is unclean. Well, maybe a few grouse. And a few mountain sheep if you're far enough south. But it would be very, very difficult for a Christian to survive under those circumstances. So it never really was a problem. Only men created a problem. But we had been told that we should do as we are told, as the Nazis were, 
so long that when someone did something contrary to Scripture, we went along with it. How long did Satan work with the third of the angels who were under him to get them to think that they could join with him and take over the other two-thirds of the angels and God the Father and the Son, well, he wasn't the Son yet, but the two beings themselves. How did he do that? He must have brain-dirtied them for quite some time after his own vanity got in the way to think that he could use his authority to supersede God. And they followed right along like dumb sheep. They weren't thinking. They didn't put this together. I can't just follow this authority. I have to look to God the Father first. They couldn't put together that Satan was still under the Father. And so were deceived. But it is so striking how fast people gave up the Sabbath there. And almost everyone gave it up. Because they thought church authority, I guess, superseded Scripture which said sunset to sunset. We can never afford to quit thinking, brethren. Now when I sat down with those men who changed it there, it was changed in Pasadena, obviously, or approved there, but the men who did it locally, I asked for a conference with. And I said, can we discuss the scriptures on the Sabbath? And they said, don't you believe this is God's church? I said, I always have. Can we discuss the scriptures on the Sabbath? Well, don't you believe this is Christ's ministry? I always have. But the Bible tells me to make a teeth and tail check for wolves. Can we discuss the scriptures about the Sabbath? We never did get around to discussing the scriptures about the Sabbath. It was all, is this God's church, and are we God's true ministry? And of course it deteriorated after I said I needed to make a teeth and tail check. Somehow that made them feel insecure, I guess, because they did not have the scriptures to stand on. They were denying Scripture. And John 10.35 says, Scripture cannot be broken. It is the final authority. But they were denying it. But what is really striking about it is that 95 plus percent of the people simply went along with it. And it had been one of the banners of the church of God, the Sabbath. It is the test commandment that sets us apart from the rest of the world and always has since Exodus. And that quickly they were deceived into thinking it was okay to keep the Sabbath from six to six. See how easily we can be deceived and let it stray. That's scary when I think back on it. Now let's go to James 1.
Let's see, I want to begin <clears throat> in verse 19. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Well, let's do our first check right here in this verse on ourselves. How many of us are swift to hear, really slow to speak, and slow to anger? Does this describe you and me? Most of us are pretty slow to hear, pretty quick to express our opinion, and pretty easily angered. So James nails us all right off the bat. For the wrath of man works not the righteousness of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. Notice the word of God is not easy, does not come, is not a natural part of us. It has to be grafted into us, and it has to be nurtured and cared for so that the graft takes. Because by nature we are deceitful above all things. The engrafted word of God which is able to save your souls. But be you doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. It's easy to say, I believe, I believe, I believe. I know this is true. I know the church teachings are basically right. It's easy for us to say, I believe. It is very difficult for us to follow through and do what we believe. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. We can look in a mirror and see what is there and not like it, perhaps. But it is so easy to turn from that mirror and say, I don't think that's really what I saw. I think I must be better looking than that. I hope I am. <laughs> but let's apply this spiritually. We look into our soul. We look into our heart. And perhaps we begin to see what is there. That we're not repenting of what we've done, but we're repenting of what we are. For it is not our sins that is the problem in the past. It's what we are that caused us the sin that is the problem. And we don't like to look at that. It is not a pretty picture in anybody's mirror. So we walk away. And we deceive ourselves, as James says, and for, forget what manner of man we saw. We get glimpses, don't we, of what we really are? And it's depressing and discouraging and frustrating, and we just as soon brush on by that, and let's go on to something better and bigger and beautiful. Now, for the next seven days, we're supposed to rub our nose in the mirror of true spirituality. And we have to get past self-deceit, number one, before we can ever begin to overcome. If you're lying to yourself about what you are, how can you overcome what you are? And the sins that so easily beset us. You can't walk away. Well, all right, what is the spiritual mirror then? Verse 25. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty 
and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. The word of God is the spiritual mirror that we have to behold. As I quoted earlier, it cuts through to the marrow and the joints and the bone. If you read the scriptures faithfully and constantly and continually, it will tell you what you really are. Maybe that's one reason we don't like to read the Bible sometimes, or we avoid certain parts of the Bible at times. We don't want to see what's really there because it reflects what we really aren't. But here is a real good reason, apart from academic efficiency and vanity, to read the Bible. Not to read it for intellectual purposes, but to read it to look into your soul because it will cut through your heart. And it is the mirror that God says we have to hold up constantly. Here's the real reason, the most basic, the most fundamental, the most important reason to read the Bible. It's not to figure out when Christ comes back. It's not for all the technicalities Yes, we need to read it from a technical standpoint at times to be sure we're understanding what it says and to research and so on, different words. But striving over words is not the ultimate reason for studying the Bible. It's to cut through the deceit of the human heart and to find out where we really live, who we really are, and what we need to change, to strip away the deception. Now, he defines it further here in verse 26. If any man among you seem to be religious, he has all the trappings and accoutrements of being a Christian. He says, I'm a Christian. He attends church faithfully. He goes to the feast. He keeps the Sabbath. He doesn't talk all the way through the service. He doesn't drink juice and pops and coke and have a hamburger in the middle of the sermon. Perhaps he really does respect God in some ways. But perhaps there are problems. If any man among you seem to be religious, he really seems to be the kind of Christian that we would look to, and bridles not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Vain, futile, utterly worthless. <clears throat> because if we can have all the trappings of the suit and the tie of Christianity and meet on the right day and still gossip and put down and deal with the negative all the time and not fulfill Philippians 4, 8, whatever things are pure and good and true and so on, the gossips will say, this is true! <laughs> this is true! That's how what they explain away Philippians 4 8. Picking out that one thing and denying the rest. Denying 1 Corinthians 13, which says love is above all these other things. Just because something is true does mean that it does not mean it is positive. And we lay our tongue on each other all too often. God says we can think we're Christian. But if we don't bridle our tongue, our religion is worthless to us. 
James at other places says, no man cradles the tongue. So this is a very, very key and important concept for us to understand. Then he describes pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, or God and the Father is this. He boils it down to two things. To visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now we can adjudge ourselves Christian all we want, but how much do we take care of the widow and the orphan? How much do we fulfill Matthew 25, where Christ said, if you don't do these things to each other, you don't do them to me? Enter into eternal death. See, there's the test. There's the acid test. Do we really take care of those who are in need? <laughs> or do we ignore them and pat ourselves on the back and say, I'm keeping the Sabbath, I must be okay. I must be Philadelphian, or whatever and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, there's a big order, too. I'm afraid we look like a bunch of Dalmatian pups. Spots all over. And the question is, how big are the spots? And the question is, can a leopard or a Dalmatian change its spots? And are our spots shrinking, or are they getting bigger? He said there in John 13 through 17 somewhere that his friendship with us has an awful lot to do with whether we love the world or not. Because if you love the world, you have no part with me as a friend. I'm paraphrasing. He who is friends with the world is not a friend of God. Now how big and how many spots do I have? Am I honest with myself or do I deceive myself and look in the mirror and say I must be okay and forget my thoughts, or am I working on getting rid of them? Do I continually look in the Word of God, the spiritual mirror, to see how spotted I am? And am I really working at it, being a doer, not a hearer only? Because he says that won't get us there. Now let's go from Mark to Mark 7. Mark 7. <coughs> And here I want verse 22, Mark 7, 22. Well, let's go a little above that. Verse 19, because it, uh, let's see, he's talking here, verse 18. When he said to them, are you so without understanding? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without enters into the man cannot defile him? Because it enters into his heart, but into the, not into his heart, but into the belly and comes out into the draught, purging all foods and so on. This is not a clean and unclean scripture. This is something that says that really that which comes from without the body is not the problem. Verse 20, and he said, That which comes out of the man, that defiles the man. For from within, from the heart, from the mind, from the human psyche, or from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, our subject of the day, lasciviousness, or lawlessness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. 
sick-hearted, black-hearted, spot-hearted is what we tend to be by nature. It isn't an outside influence that is the problem, Christ is saying. It's what comes from within you from your very nature that is the problem. Eating something dirty or unwashed is not the problem. You see, we would like to think that we are okay, but it's that which comes to us that is the problem. Whether it be unwashed food or whether it be something from the television, it's the world's fault I'm a problem. We like to blame it on TV or the magazines or the movies or our neighbors or whoever we can blame it on, deceiving ourselves that it is an outside influence that is our problem. But it is not. He's telling us very clearly it is the carnal human nature from within that creates these sins. Now Satan and his wavelength in the world does affect us. I'm not saying that, but the core problem is not the outside influence. The core problem is the nature from within which responds to the outside influence. We don't like to look at what we really are. We have the tendency that James was talking about. We have ulterior motives so often. We have a public face, but private thoughts. Let's notice Jeremiah 9. Brings this scripture to mind. Jeremiah 9, verse 6. Jeremiah 9, 6. Your habitation is in the midst of deceit. Through deceit they refuse to know me, says the Lord. We deceive ourselves, and we don't really know God. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will melt them and try them, for how shall I do for the daughter of my people? He says the church, this is a prophecy for the end time, is deceitful to the point they refuse to know God. Because if we look at God and what his real righteousness is, then we hide from ourselves because we can't stand the comparison. So we don't really look in the scriptures to find out what is wrong, what has gone askew. And most of the church today is not willing to look at these prophecies and say, we have a problem here and we are being scattered because of sin. <laughs> they don't want to face it. They don't want to believe God would do this, so they blame it on Satan or the Laodiceans, of which, of course, they are not one. Are we willing to really know God or not? See, we can deceive ourselves into thinking we're okay, and we will not look in the Scriptures to make the comparison. Oh, how perverse we are. Now, what triggered this Bible study as it started out to be was a little series I'm doing in, or did, or, well, I guess still doing, in the forerunner on the little Bible study on the back page. Because when I got into the churches, I found that at least two of the seven are absolutely, totally, completely self-deceived. Consider Sardis which says, I am alive, that is their own 
Um, lost the word. Senior moment, I guess. Uh, that is their own assessment, put it that way, of themselves, is that they are alive. But Christ says, no, you are dead. Now, how do you reconcile those two? The self-analysis is, we're alive. Christ's analysis is, absolutely diametrically opposed to theirs. Of course, nobody thinks they're Sardis, so this doesn't apply to anybody, I understand. But there is a whole church who says we are living. And Christ says, no, you are dead. Go on down to Laodicea. Ones who say, I am rich and increased with goods. I'm spiritually okay. I'm a Philadelphian. And Christ says, no, you are naked and blind. His analysis of them is absolutely the opposite of their own analysis of themselves. Could it be, brethren, that some people who think they're laid, I mean, who think that they are Philadelphian are really Laodicean in truth? Because their assessment of themselves in placing themselves as Philadelphians today is that they are okay, they're fine, they're rich and increased with goods and just a waiting place of safety and kingdom of God is an automatic in their lives. <clears throat> and they may be deceiving themselves into thinking they're Philadelphian when in reality that very statement makes them a Laodicean. I say them, I'm including me here, first and foremost. In other words, we cannot trust self-analysis. We must look in the Word of God constantly. We cannot trust ourselves to tell the truth about ourselves. We will walk away from the mirror and say, that wasn't really me. What time is it? Okay, let's go back to Jeremiah 2. Jeremiah 2. And verse 21. Yet, have I, yet I had planted you a noble vine, wholly a right seed, like the mustard seed, and like Isaiah 5 says of his vineyard. How then are you turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine to me? How is it that my analysis of you is different than your analysis of you? For though you wash you with nitre and take you much soap, Yet your iniquity is marked before me, says the Lord God. We like to soap ourselves up and wipe ourselves off and say, I'm okay, like Proverbs 30:20, where the harlot wiped her mouth and said, I've done no sin. We like to deceive ourselves about ourselves and say, oh, I've cleaned myself up, I'm okay. The blood of Jesus Christ and grace covers me, therefore I'm all right. But God is looking at the church and saying it's a degenerate plant of a strange vine. And all the self-soaping, soft-soaping we do of our own nature is a deception. Chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 27. As a, as a cage is full of birds, so are their houses, their churches, 
talking about the churches here of God. And we've already seen that in Revelation 2 through 3. Their houses are full of deceit. Therefore, they are become great and waxen rich. They're waxen fat. They shine. Yea, they overpass the deeds of the wicked. They analyze themselves and say, man, we are so beautiful. We're a great church. We're the best of the daughters. We've reviewed that recently in Isaiah 3. We're the prettiest one of the bunch. That's what all the churches tend to think of themselves. They judge not the cause, the cause of the fatherless. Here's James, pure religion and undefiled. Yet they prosper. David said, why do the wicked seem to prosper? And the right of the needy do they not judge. So here is the condition of the churches at the end. Thinking they're okay, appearing good, looking good in the mirror to themselves. But God says, shall I not visit for these things, says the Lord? Shall not my soul be avenged on such a nation or a people as this? A wonderful and horrible thing is committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests bear rule by their means. And my people love to have it so. Preach a sweet, wonderful, peaceful things. Sorry, can't do it. We've got to strip away the veneer of self-deception about what our true spiritual state is, or this is going to continue. That is, the scattering of the churches. Because God shall surely visit for this self-deception. They're prospering, but to no avail. They're on, perhaps, radio stations and TV stations, but to no avail. It's not accomplishing anything. We can say, we're Philadelphia, and the rest of you are Laodiceans, but that doesn't accomplish anything, because we're not looking into the perfect law of liberty and seeing us ourselves for what we really are and how God assesses us. Jeremiah 14, 14. Moving on here. Jeremiah 14, 14. Then the Lord said to me, The prophets prophesy lies in my name. I sent them not, neither I commanded them, neither spake to them. They prophesy to you a false vision and divination, and a thing of nothing, and the deceit of their heart. This is what is being preached by the majority. Brethren, it's wrong. The curse, causeless, does not come. Jeremiah 9, 6, we already read. I won't go back there. A common phrase applies. If only we could see ourselves as others see us. Proverbs 12, verse 20. Let's cover a couple more of these quickly. Proverbs Chapter 12 and verse 20. Deceit is in the heart of them that imagine evil, but to the counselors of peace is joy. Do we imagine evil? Do evil imaginations go through our minds? Do we think on evil things? Well, if we do, we probably still think of ourselves as Christian, and yet we put up with these deceitful things that go through our minds. Rather than rooting it out, as I said at the very beginning, we're going to address the hardest thing that we have to face, stripping away the deceit and actually overcoming something. 
First John one. First John one. Verse eight. Again, a new commandment I write to you. Remember what Christ said there in John thirteen through seventeen somewhere, a new commandment that you love one another. A new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past, and the true light now shines. He that says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness even until now. That isn't the verse I was supposed to be reading, but it fits. <laughs> we'll go back and read the one I was supposed to read momentarily. We think we're in the light. We're in darkness. We're deceiving ourselves. <coughs> now, let's go to 1 John 1.8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to correct someone? They have this image of themselves, this prideful, um, vain image, and any time we crack that image that they see in the mirror, they do not like it. Herbert Armstrong said hundreds of times, the hardest thing for a person to do is admit that they're wrong. It's hard enough for them to admit it to themselves. But what if you come along and tell them they're wrong? Ever notice how quick human nature is to be quick to anger and quick to speak and to try to continue in deception about themselves, to deceive themselves and you about themselves. It's germane to our nature. It's what we are. It's what we're made of. But it is Christian to say, I'm a sinner. We will all admit that we're sinners, won't we? Because it's clear in the Bible that that generality is true. So if someone says, are you a sinner? You'll say yes. Ah, you're covered. Everything's fine. Okay? Now, what if that person gets specific and says, this is your sin? Now, that's what triggers the defensiveness in us. That's what triggers our vanity and our ego. We don't want to admit our specific sins. We want to remain in the dark and keep them in the dark about what our specific sins are. Now, there are a few who will admit to every sin there is and like to go around and tell everybody how sinful they are because they're masochistic. But for the average person on the pew in the church, maybe pew has several different meanings. We don't like for people to point out our errors and our sins and our faults. It is contrary to our nature. We don't like to look in the Word of God and admit it, and we don't like other people to point it out for sure. So perhaps we could paraphrase this and say, he who says he is without specific or particular sin deceives himself. I don't think that's resting the Scripture at all, because we have to be specific in the days of unleavened bread. It doesn't help to say, yeah, I'm a sinner, Lord, I'll overcome that. We have to be specific to ourselves. What is my sin? What does God say my sin is? And I have to overcome those specific sins. And it isn't pleasant when some man who stinks and sweats 
sins just like we are, stands up and says, you're sinners. And I'm a sinner. Those are not easy words. They're not words we love to hear. These are not pleasant days in that sense. If we can come out of this with a high hand having overcome some things, some attitudes, whatever they are, wonderful. And we can have a high hand. But it takes work. It takes work to strip away the self-deceit, first of all, so we can even approach what our sins are. Galatians 6. Galatians 6. Verse 3. Well, let's begin in verse 2. Bear you one another's burdens. We don't want to do that. And so fulfill the law of Christ. This love one to another Christ was talking about. For if a man think himself to be something, I am really something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself, thou worm Jacob. But let every man prove his own work. It's by what we actually do, echoing James' words, not hearers only. And then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another, for every man shall bear his own burden. Let him that is taught in the word communicate to him that teaches in all good things. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. It is axiomatic. It is absolutely certain. It is undeniable. That's what James said. Here only won't cut it. You have to be a doer of these things. I say you, I mean we. Romans 12, 3. Romans 12, verse 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, seriously, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. We tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We tend by nature to put others down to make ourselves look good. That's what every sitcom is based on. Putting other people down to make ourselves look good. Not wrong to kid one another, but we need to be very, very careful not to exalt ourselves. Philippians 2. Philippians 2. <coughs> Verse 2. Fulfill you my joy, that you be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Love mentioned first. You love one another, you're my disciples. Remember the test there at the beginning. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Now there is a tall order to actually esteem others better than ourselves. You know who did that pretty well? Jesus the Christ. He considered his own life of less value than yours and mine. He esteemed us, sinners though we are, better than himself. When he was taken out and accused of our sins, he uttered not a word. He took our sins on his own back. He esteemed us higher than himself. Willing, loving, 
friendly enough with us that he was willing to die for our sins. And he had no sin. Now there's a friend. There's a friend who covered for us by not saying, but they! You're beginning to get an inkling of what he says when he says, I want to call you friends henceforth. See why it's been heavy on my mind since that leaped out at me. I don't want to call you servants. I want to call you friends from now on. First class upgrade here. But you know what? First class costs more. I don't fly first class on the airlines. Unless somebody gives me a free upgrade. But spiritually, there's no free lunch. Well, in one sense, there is. Jesus the Christ is the one that's providing the lunch for us. But he does tell us we have to pay. There is a contingency. Obey, love one another. By this shall all men know if you're my disciples or not. doesn't say by how much you pray, how much you study, and how wonderful your relationship with God is. It says by how you treat one another shall men know whether you're my disciples or not. That's the best. Hebrews 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Now what is our responsibility? Verse 12. Take heed, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil heart of unbelief, there's that evil heart again, in departing from the living God and Thousands and thousands of people are departing from the living God as we sit here. But exhort one another daily. Have enough care about each other to interact, to talk to each other. Not on a semi-annual or annual basis, but daily. Be of a mind, be of a telephone, be of a letter-writing mode. Be of a service to actually take care of the widow and the spiritual orphan. Let's upgrade that from the, the physical widow and orphan. We have enough trouble taking care of them. But what about all these spiritual orphans out here? Are we exhorting each other daily? And not just in our own little group? Do we care for those others out there, or do we figure, hey, they can take care of themselves. I have my little group, and we become insular and pat ourselves on the mouth or on the back and wipe our mouth and say, I've done no sin. Where is the outreach? Are we doing it? It's not just sick among ourselves. It's not just orphaned among ourselves. Those are all the people of God out there. How can we be so exclusive? Exhort one another daily while it is called today, while you still have the chance, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is such a deceiving thing. It is so easily 
able to beset us, as Paul said, right here, very close to what we're reading. The sin that so easily besets us. Bottom line, deceit is one of the greatest enemies of relationships and friendships. It's the first one we have to deal with. If we're self-deceived about our attitudes, about our spirituality, about our conduct, how are we going to overcome it? You have to strip the deceit away. What did Christ tell the Laodiceans? You think you see. But he said, you're blind. Anoint your eyes with eyesalves so that you may see. Now, if we think we see, we think we see. Really? But God says you don't see. You're deceived. You're self-deceived. Well, anybody who thinks he is not a Laodicean today is probably in great danger of being shown by Christ he really is a Laodicean. There is only one safe procedure, like AA. Hi, my name is Bill. I'm a recovering Laodicean. Or maybe I'm just now getting to admit that I am one. I'm not even recovering yet. Give me some ISAP. But I may look into the perfect law of liberty and clearly see what I really am, not walk away saying I'm Philadelphia and I don't even need to look in the mirror. That is the approach many have today, unfortunately. And the curse causeless does not come and God is not mocked. And the church is going to continue to splinter and splinter and splinter until we strip away the deception and look at the Word of God. It is only when deceit in comparison is removed and we truly esteem others better than ourselves that we are prepared for friendship with each other or with deity. Are we willing to just blow people off because we think we have better beliefs than they? Are we willing to treat them as enemies or non-entities because we think we're better than they are or better off spiritually or no more? Do we dismiss them from our minds? How far will we go for our spiritual brothers and friends? How far will we go for God the Father in Jesus Christ? Let's close with two scriptures here. I want to go back to John 16, which is where this sermon at this point is rooted, along with Jeremiah 17, 9. John 16, 1. These things have I spoken to you that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the churches. Yea, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God's service. This is on the horizon for us, brethren. This is ahead for the church of God, especially those who are faithful and obedient. Especially those. They're the ones Satan hates the most, and they're the ones that the world who follow Satan will hate the most. So the more righteous you actually become, the more jeopardy you face. Wonderful thought, isn't it? <laughs> the better I get, the more likely I'm going to face this. Don't let it deter you. Paul says, don't shrink back, but move boldly 
before the throne of grace. These things will they do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. I'm sure these words came back to the disciples' minds as they were being martyred, persecuted, and killed. But is it just to them? These things I said not to you at the beginning because I was with you. We still had a master-servant relationship, he says. Now I call you friends. And friend, you better listen. They're going to do these things to us. Not just to them. Let's prove that. Matthew 24. Matthew 24. This is an end-time prophecy. It's talking about the stones of the temple being thrown down, and boy, are we in the middle of that today. And it's talking about the end of the world, verse 3. End of the verse, end of the world. It talks about wars and rumors of wars, pestilences, earthquakes, all the things that we see increasing around us. Verse 9. All these things have happened. These are the beginning of sorrows, verse 8. But verse 9, then shall they deliver you. Not those disciples. This is the end of the age. It's talking about you and me. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you. No equivocation there. Uh, I think he means exactly what he said. And you shall be hated of all peoples for my name's sake. And then shall many fail the test of friendship. Then shall many be offended and shall betray their friends and shall hate their friends. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many. I don't think that's just Methodist, Baptists, and Catholics, as we see it among ourselves. Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 34 were written first to the church, later to the Methodists and Catholics. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. In other words, the test of friendship that Christ outlined in John 13 through 17, which we reviewed Passover evening, Many, many, many people are going to fail. They will not have accepted the challenge of true friendship, of removing deceit in themselves. And they will not esteem others better than themselves. They will esteem themselves better than others and their own hide more important than someone else's hide and be offended and betray one another. And the love which men know whether we are the disciples of Christ by, will go by the boards. And many will fail the tests of discipleship and true friendship and will have rejected what Christ told us there. Henceforth, I want to be your friend, not just your master. I share it all. I give it all. How much, brethren, are we willing to give to our friends and brothers? What about Paul? As one example. He said if someone is new or weak, 
he would go so far as never to eat meat again in his entire life for that weak or faithless brother. Now you think about that. Here is someone, Paul said, oh, they're just weak. They just don't have any faith. Blow them off. Forget about them. They're not as righteous as weak. Check them out. Ignore them. No. He said, I will make the personal sacrifice. Now, here's a friend for you. How many of us have a friend who will be said, you know, I just can't conscientiously eat meat? And we would say, friend, I will never eat meat again until I can in good consciousness and you in good consciousness with me eat meat together. I'll never touch another steak, another hamburger, another piece of lamb. I really enjoyed that lamb, that turkey, that food you girls prepared last night. That was good. I want to put on the record, the women in Phoenix, Arizona, are mighty fine cooks. Come here and you will not be disappointed. I guess they get a lot of practice cooking on their car hoods on the sidewalk. <laughs> Oven's always hot. <laughs> but I think back on what I had to eat last night. Would I be willing to give up that delicious meat because someone had a conscience problem with it? That's a tall order. Paul said, I'll do it till the day I die that way, if it's going to offend a brother. Now, there's a man who had come to accept the credentials of friendship, true friendship. i use one more example. Jesus the Christ went even further than that, although Paul died for what he believed in his friendship with God. But Jesus Christ took on the sins of all sinners. Now there is a friend indeed. He was willing to go the whole nine yards for you and me. The whole banana. Everything. He was willing to give his life. Now, there's the test. Go back to Matthew 24. Many of us, brethren, would betray our friends and brothers in the church and say, he's the Christian. <laughs> Try to get the attention off ourselves. We would sacrifice our brothers because we esteem our lives more important than theirs. But we're in a very holy time here today, are we willing to strip away the deceit about what our sins really are, look at them and the law of liberty, and not go away and forget what manner of men we were, but to look deeply for the next seven days into our hearts and minds and see what our real spiritual attitude is and how far we're willing to go for God and man, because that's what the Ten Commandments are all about. And 
that our relationships have an awful lot to do and whether or not we are true friends or whether we are deceitful friends who hold things back and will betray one another at the slightest drop of a hat or a tongue. Please think about this through these seven days. I speak again on the last day in the morning and we'll get to the second element that stands in the way of our overcoming. First of, all, first of all, we get rid of the deceit. We face things honestly for what they really are in our lives. But I'll tell you what, the minute you do that, another problem crops up immediately. We'll cover that on the last day, God willing. So goodbye for now, and we'll see you again on the network in a few hours. Please hang up your phones.